0: mm <music> I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the IISS, and this is Sound Strategic, our podcast to showcase the extraordinary talent of our institution. And I have the great good fortune today to have with me Aaron Connolly, who is a Singapore based fellow who does Southeast Asia, South Asia politics. Um, and he's educated at the Elliott School at GW, did his graduate work at Georgetown in the School of Foreign Service. He's done a lot of interesting business consulting, including with the Albright Stonebridge Group. Uh, what else about your background should I mention, Aaron?
1: I came to uh, S from the Lowy Institute in Sydney, Australia, which That's- is a little bit uh you know, if, if to make a baseball analogy, if, if we're allowed to do that on the Double S podcast. Of course,
0: near and dear to my heart.
1: It's a little bit like baseball players going to Japan uh, <laughs> instead of riding the bench in the major leagues because Australia <laughs> really cares about Southeast Asia. And so it's, um, uh, it's one of those places where if you're a Southeast Asia specialist, you get a lot of reps in. So it was fun.
0: So what about your work is in the <laughs> news these days? Which of the many areas of recent elections do you want to focus on?
1: Well, there's been a bunch of interesting developments in Southeast Asia this year. There was the Thai election in March, and we're still trying to figure out what the real result of that election will have been, whether the military government will continue in power or not. But then we also have the election in April of a new president in Indonesia, and that's also had a long tail. We're still not entirely sure. We're pretty sure that Jokowi will have been reelected, but uh, the legal process hasn't concluded yet and won't conclude until late June.
0: Hmm. I was struck. uh, So we are recording this at the S the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore. And the dialogue this year was kicked off by the Prime Minister of Singapore. And he talked a lot about competition between China and the United States. And I was actually surprised that that was his focus. Although that is the big story, uh, the continued rise of China and the growing friction with the United States. But I was surprised that the Singaporean prime minister didn't focus on the middle and smaller powers of Asia and South Asia and and their ability to shape narratives, to, to set and enforce the rules of order. Were you surprised by that?
1: Not really. Not at this point. I think a few years ago there was a conversation about what Southeast Asia would do to help support the rules-based order. Uh, but there's a sort of um, – Southeast Asians are pretty dispirited by what they've seen happen in the last few years, by the U.S. decision to withdraw from TPP, which they saw as really core and fundamental to that order, in a way that I'm not sure Americans appreciated. And then also Chinese actions in the South China Sea and, and the way that those mm-hmm. have been conducted with uh, with real impunity.
0: Yeah, um, I was uh, struck that Acting Secretary Shanahan. Uh, kept emphasizing economics throughout his talk and that economic security is national security. And it seemed to me one more dispiriting example of the Trump administration not having the gears connected to the engine because uh, the withdrawal from TPP looks really short-sighted given that they are now trying to organize people into economic opposition to Chinese depredation. Does it look that way to you?
1: Yeah, it does. And I think there are people in the administration who understand that, Uh, people in pretty high ranking positions who say, look, we would have loved to have done the TPP. They'll quote uh, former Defense Secretary Ash Carter when he said the TPP would have been worth another aircraft carrier to him. Um, That may have not actually been the best way to put it, particularly in this region, uh, to to tie the economics and the geopolitics so closely together um, uh, for this audience. But uh, they're now trying to work on something called uh, on implementing the BUILD Act, which passed last year. So energizing U.S. private sector investment into Southeast Asia. The problem is there are not a lot of bankable projects that private sector investors from the United States are interested in this region. So if that's sort of their alternative to withdrawing from the TPP, then I'm not sure that uh, it's actually going to have the impact that they expect.
0: Moreover, it looked to me like the main advantage of the TPP was establishing the rules by which economic interaction would be conducted among the 19 countries, and that would have created an economy of scale that required China to acknowledge and opt into those rules, Mm. and that they gave that away for nothing. You can actually... You can feel the anxiety among the countries represented here at the Shangri-La Dialogue that the United States is offering a lot of military reassurance, but not the political reassurance that they're craving. And my strongest impression, listening to the conversations across the last two days, is how anxious countries in Asia are that they're – opportunities they have had to have security relationships with the United States and deepening economic relationships with China. To sustain both of those simultaneously has been possible, and they seem to be quite anxious that that space is collapsing.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And the other aspect of this that I would add is the rebalance, the Obama administration's rebalance. There was a military aspect to it that actually is sort of ongoing. It's, it's there. It's not always been satisfactory for Southeast Asia, particularly because it hasn't been used to push back against these Chinese actions in the South China Sea. The economic part dropped out when we dropped out of TPP. But there was also this third part, a diplomatic plank to the rebalance. And that was participation in these – Uh, structures that are focused on or built around the association of Southeast Asian nations. So coming to these summits, and unfortunately, President Trump, he did come to the first uh, East Asia summit in Manila, his first year in office, but he left early before it actually began. So he was in (laughs) town and and couldn't stay the extra few hours for the East Asia summit. Um, He had had a long trip was the the White House's excuse. Uh, And then on the other hand, he, he didn't come at all last year.
0: Moreover, the White House has the ability to program his trip, right? If they, they showed this wasn't a priority by putting it at the end of a long trip where he would write it off.
1: Exactly. And I think for Southeast Asian countries, they feel like this is one of the few ways they have to really shape the regional order, because everyone comes to their summit. They run this summit. China comes, the US comes, Japan comes. But if we're sending Vice President Pence instead of President Trump, uh, then it's, um, it's, it's sort of a, it's a loss of face, basically.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell me how we should understand what's going on in Indonesian politics.
1: It's, uh, it's a fascinating system. So uh, Indonesia's democracy, uh, our polling when I was at the Lowy Institute showed that a lot of people don't understand that it's a democracy, but it's been in a democracy for 21 years now. And uh, it's had a number of successes in terms of moving the military out of the civil uh, ministries. Um, it carries on elections, free and fair elections, very well. Um, and so it was actually the world's largest direct presidential election uh, wow. back, in, back in April. Um, you had uh, hundreds of millions of people voting in, in an election on a single day. India spreads its elections out over several weeks. So they're very good at some of these things. They have a, a pretty good electoral system. But Indonesia has been experiencing backsliding in terms of uh, liberal values over the last few years. And so President Jokowi has surrounded himself with generals from the Suharto era, from the authoritarian era. And they've done some authoritarian things and we shouldn't be terribly surprised by this. Um, And so he's gone after political opponents. He's charged them with treason in some cases, not actually followed through on those charges. Mm -hmm. It's a fairly soft form of uh, illiberalism, but it's moving in an increasingly illiberal direction. And the election that we saw um, recently between President Jokowi, who was running for re-election, and Prabowo Subianto, who was his opponent and had also been his opponent five years ago as a rematch, uh, that exposed some of the the, uh, creeping illiberalism that we've seen over the last few years.
0: I just realized the thing that I left out of your bio that I wanted to mention was that you had been a Fulbright fellow in Jakarta. Is that where your interest in Southeast Asian politics got its start?
1: Uh, Sort of. I was actually, when I was an undergrad, I was taking Japanese and I was studying Japanese politics. And uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I found that... um, Japanese politics was too stable. It was, it was too stable for me to continue working on it and make a career out of it. So I thought I would go someplace a little bit less stable and, and therefore, from my perspective at the time, more interesting. And uh, Indonesian politics was so opaque, so difficult to understand, uh, that I thought it would be a, a fascinating way to spend at least part of my career.
0: Excellent. And what's your favorite book in your field?
1: I think for people who want to understand Indonesia, I actually don't recommend a work of nonfiction. I always recommend a work of fiction. It's sort of the seminal Indonesian novel. Uh, It's called Bumi Manusia in Indonesian, or This Earth of Mankind. And it's written by really the bard of Indonesia, of Bahasa Indonesia, uh, Pramudian Nantator. And it's about uh, the colonial period in Indonesia. And for Westerners like us, it really helps you get a good understanding of why the colonial period was so painful for Indonesians mm. and why you know Westerners often struggle to understand why Indonesia is so nationalist, they feel. Um, and the book really helps you get an understanding of what it was like to be governed by a foreign power um, and why that might make a polity very nationalist and uh, very sensitive to slights against their sovereignty.
0: Uh, I think you are the first one of our analysts who has used a work of literature rather than a work of political science or history, and that just absolutely delights me. When I teach Thinking About War at Stanford, I about two-thirds of what I have students read is literature, because it allows you to inhabit somebody else's experience. Um, And and I find much more effective for conveying a feel of what the experience is like for students. It grounds them a lot better. So I'm thrilled you used a great novel of Indonesia. And and
1: actually, it's a a quartet. It's called the Buru Quartet. So if you like the first one, there are three more to read. But (laughs) just reading the first one will give you a really good sense of uh, how Indonesians think about their history and their identity.
0: Very good. Thank you for that suggestion. Mm -hmm. Okay, my next question is... What is the conventional wisdom in your field that you think is wrong?
1: Well, I also spend a lot of time working on Myanmar, and I think one of the main misunderstandings about Myanmar today, obviously Aung San Suu Kyi was, uh, won an election in 2015 and was sworn in as a kind of prime minister in 2016. The military still controls three ministries in Myanmar, the Ministry of Defense, the Ministry of Home Affairs, the internal security apparatus, and then the Ministry of Border Affairs. Uh, but Aung San Suu Kyi controls the rest of the government, and oftentimes in the press she's portrayed as a a state counselor, a leader in name only, but she actually has quite a bit of sway. And some of the things that we've seen in Myanmar over the last several years that uh, have drawn objections, for instance, the imprisonment of the two Reuters reporters who were freed in early May, that actually was done with her approval. So it had to receive the president's approval. She controls the presidency. It's, it's her appointee. And she controls the attorney general's office. And so those cases were brought by the civilian government. Um, and so it, it's not as easy as uh, just blaming the military for some of these cases. It's actually a, a partnership between Aung San Suu Kyi and the military now. And, and she is partly responsible for these abuses.
0: So it sounds like you're suggesting she is getting a pass because people aren't holding her accountable. They are get- Either because of her history or as, as an advocate for the return to democracy in the country or because of um, the military's continued rule that she's getting a pass when she should be being held accountable.
1: Well, it's interesting because a lot of people will say, well, she should speak out. Uh, And that sort of assumes that she doesn't have power, but she does have power. She has a lot of power and she's only used it very sparingly. She's used it on one occasion in particular. The constitution does not allow her to become president. But she said that if she won the election, she would go around the Constitution and mm-hmm. she would be above the president and would create a new position that was above the president. The military said that was unacceptable. They wouldn't allow it. And it was never really clear how this would pan out, whether they would allow her to do it or not. So she took a big risk. She used her parliamentary majority to change the law and the military accepted it. So she, she is willing to use her power and take risks when it's in her, you know, service of her own political ambitions. But she's not been using to take those risks or use her power in service of the Rohingya's human rights uh, or liberalism or freedom of the press in her country.
0: Okay, that's a great education. Thank you for that. My last question, the one that I ask all of our nerdy analysts, because one of my favorite things about double S is that as producers of data, we're so much more tightly grounded to data than many other than the work of many other think tanks, and so my closing question to everybody is always what's your favorite data visualization
1: Well, I, I work at the double S now, so I 'm really obligated to say something that, that we have produced, but because i 'm <laughs> no, so you're new not. here. Um, if I could just uh, point people to a, a map that we produced when I was at the Lowy Institute, which mapped all the freedom of navigation operations that the United States had conducted from 1991 until 2016.
0: I've never seen that.
1: I will happily show it to you.
0: We're going to post it with this podcast.
1: But uh, I think there's this misunderstanding. and, and um, the Chinese delegates here at shangri law certainly sought to take advantage of that misunderstanding, that freedom of navigation operations only occur in the South China Sea, only challenge Chinese claims, um, and that they're basically done to poke a, poke a uh, finger in the eye of, of the CCP. And Actually, the United States has been doing freedom of navigation operations since 1979, and they've been documenting them since 1991. The United States does them all over the world. Uh, they do them to challenge allies' claims. So recently they've done freedom of navigation operations to challenge Japanese claims, South hmm. Korean claims, Italian claims. Apparently the Italians have an unacceptable claim to the Gulf of Toronto. Huh. Um, and so it's, it's something that the U.S. does all around the world in service of international law not because of geopolitical rivalry.
0: It is one of my favorite um, chef's kiss oddities about American foreign policy that uh, we were uh, a central driver on the adoption of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, that we, although we will not ratify it, we not only abide by it, we enforce it on others, that that somehow captures the the internal consistencies, but also that kind of thrumming um, ability to set rules of order and a willingness to enforce them that characterize the American order.
1: Absolutely. And there's this dichotomy between China and the United States. China, which has ratified the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, but doesn't abide by it. Right. And on the other hand, the U.S., which will never, uh, it, it will certainly not in uh, the next few years, ratify the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and hasn't for the last 20 Um, but abides by it, and it's sort of a stickler for abiding by it. Um, And I guess the question for countries in this region is, would you prefer a country that has ratified a document but doesn't abide by it or one that hasn't ratified the document but does abide by it?
0: An excellent note to end on. Aaron Connolly, thank you so much for your excellent work for the IISS, and thank you for this excellent interview, my friend.
1: Thanks, Corey.